like to continue in prayer. I want to pray for another uh, church in our community. We like to do that each week. Uh, we want, um, we're doing a few things in that, uh, in, in praying for another church in our community. We are, we are reminding ourselves that we're not in competition with any other church. And we're also sharing that with you. If you may be visiting here this morning, we have one chance to visit with you this morning. You'll hear in one sitting that we are cheering for God's glory and fame and renown and kingdom advancement through all the churches in our community. And that's the way we should be, I think. That's the disposition we should have for one another. So we're going to pray for Fellowship Bible Church, who's uh, getting a new pastor in January. So I don't even know who the pastor's name is, but the Lord knows. So we'll pray for them, and we'll pray about how we... Uh, enjoy him in these next few minutes. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for the time and song this morning. The worship and song is was sweet and rich. And uh, Lord, we have asked for many things already just through song. And we've celebrated many true things about you through song. Lord, we uh, want to continue our worship uh, now with prayer. Uh, first of all, acknowledging in prayer that you are the worker. You are the agent behind all uh, movement that we can't do anything apart from you. We can't hope for anything to happen apart from you and your design and your plan. And Lord, we just want to bring before you a request for a, a local church, for Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, we want to pray for faithfulness uh, from the pulpit and from um, the staff and from the leadership. And Lord, we pray that they are enjoying you, that it's worship that's fueling their work. Uh, Lord, we pray for this pastor that's coming and uh, if he's a, a man with a family, Lord, we just pray for his family, too, that in this journey to Greenville, that he, will, um, that he will come with expectations that maybe Isaiah could inform, and that his eyes will be fixed on you, and that he will enjoy your holiness, that that will fuel his work. Pray that it could be a, a partnership, too, as we serve alongside other brothers and sisters in our community, and we work alongside them, alongside them and live next to them that we can cheer for them as we cheer for your fame and your renown and your glory through Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for um, just the many various burdens that we bring in this room this morning. All manner of stuff, from physical stuff to relational stuff, uh, money issues, um, uh, fears maybe about our future as in, a, in our country. Uh, all manner of stuff in here, Lord. We just want to lay every bit of it at your feet. Thankful that we can entrust all of it to you this morning, that we can sit and just enjoy your presence, enjoy your character, enjoy your work and your plan. Lord, I'm thankful, before we even begin this sermon, I'm thankful that your word doesn't return void ever, that it does its work. I pray this morning that that work will be understood and display and reveal. We give this time to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'd like for you to consider a question that I've posed to our church a couple times over the years, I think. I, it may have only been one Sunday, but I believe I've, I've asked this of our church a couple of times. So some of you may have considered this question before. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. If someone were to ask you to fill in the blank, God is blank. I want you to think for a moment of how you might answer that question, how you might fill in that blank. And maybe even if you take notes, are you um, one of those that has a journal or something like that as you're recording sermon notes, you might record that question at the top of the page. God is blank. And fill that in 
with what God, this, this first thing that comes to mind when I make that statement and that uh, sentence into that blank. And I want to offer to you, I want to tell you um, that how you answer that question will likely have a lot to do with how you digest the sermon I'm about to preach and how you process or maybe not process the sermon I'm about to preach. So hopefully, uh, as I acknowledge that up front, by the end of the morning, maybe we can land on a similar answer um, to that blank, to that statement that might help us all process this sermon in a way that I think God would intend. Isaiah chapter 6 does a lot to help us fill in that blank. It is one of the most profound, uh, I think potent chapters in our Bible teaching on the holiness of God. And that's kind of a hint and a wink, wink at how you might answer that question. Although I don't want to tell you that you're wrong, how you've answered it. We'll come back to that later. But this chapter, I think, should help you fill in that blank with what might be filled in there first before anything else. And we'll come back to that. What might leave all the other attributes there as well, but secondary or third. In Isaiah 6 is the call of Isaiah uh, to the ministry. Isaiah had a 60-plus year ministry to the, nation of, or to the nation of Israel, we could say, as a whole, primarily to Judah. Uh, he's preaching and teaching and prophesying during a time where the northern kingdom is about to go into exile. And actually, he overlaps it. He is ministering during the period that Assyria uh, basically destroys the northern kingdom and takes the northern kingdom into exile. And then he's leading up to the time where the southern kingdom of Judah will be going into exile into Babylon. Now, I realize that, you know, I'll just share with you. I probably spent most of my life, I have spent my entire life in church, but probably spent most of my life having really no idea what someone was talking about when they're talking about the exile. So let me just briefly give you some high watermarks. There's creation, okay? Different people date creation at different points. Some people date it as, as billions of years ago, and that can be God-honoring. There's a, a God-honoring explanation for that. It's called the day-age theory. Some people date it as a relatively new earth, which takes Genesis 1 as very literal handling. And then but whatever the case, it's a high water mark, wherever you date it. Okay? Another high water mark would be the call of Abram, later called Abraham. Another high water mark, and that's around 2,000 years BC. Another high water mark would be the Exodus, which is around 1,500 years BC. Another high water mark, and the one where we're actually dealing with, it's, which a large portion of our Old Testaments is dedicated to this period, is the time of the exile which is around, if you want to just kind of make it easy, just say around 700 B.C. for the northern kingdom, northern and southern kingdom. They're different, the timing. But just for the sake of reference, to get the high water mark on the map, we'll say about 700 years before Christ. And then, of course, the high water mark that we all really enjoy, which we should, is Christ's work. Okay? So just kind of give you those references. We are spending our time this fall leading up to Christmas morning uh, dealing with the high watermark of the exile and what God was doing that, during that period and how in many ways he's developing the darkness for the time where the light of the world would be born. That's why it's such a delightful, though underrepresented, at least, a lot of, and at least in my background, period in the story of redemption. 
It's developing the darkness for the light of the world to be born. Okay? Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 7 together just, as, uh, just for context. This is where we were last week. If you, were, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now let me just give you a reference for where this sits in the book of Isaiah. The first five chapters of Isaiah are sort of like a prelude to the book. Okay, They're sort of a collection of oracles that help make sense of the rest of the book. But Isaiah 6 is the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And Isaiah marks the beginning of his ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. He has a view and a vision of the Lord sitting upon his throne. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. See, that's what happens when man, period, we're not talking good man, bad man, man, period, is in the presence of the holiness of God. You recognize, woe is me. He says next, in this version, in my ESV, he says, I am lost. For some of you that may have a different version, the New American Standard uses the word, I am ruined, It's the word that was used for the silence that people felt after they experienced a a death of a loved one. I am lost. I am ruined. He is experiencing death in the presence of God's holiness. I am lost. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man, we can imagine at that point what most kings would do in the presence of opposition. What most kings would do with rebels is they would kill them. But we have a a king that's altogether different. A king that's not like any king that the earth has ever experienced in any kingdom. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. God takes the initiative and sends a seraphim to fly to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is a terrifying and yet beautiful vision of God in the temple in the throne room. The holiness of God is the centerpiece, and it leaves Isaiah ruined. But God doesn't leave Isaiah ruined. He instead atones for his sin with a coal from the altar, representing what takes place on the altar, and pays for his sin. Ruined Isaiah is now, because of what God has done, ready Isaiah. That's where we pick up this morning in verse 8. And just to give you kind of a map and a plan for how we're going to spend these next few minutes, we're going to look at verse 8 by itself. And we're going to consider how Isaiah was made readied or made ready. And then secondly, we're going to look at verses 9 through 10 or 9 and 10. And we're going to look at the nature of his call. And it's a doozy. And then we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. And we're going to try and make sense of that doozy his call. Okay, so let's look at verse 8. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is the first time that the Lord speaks in this chapter, and he poses a question to Isaiah and the heavenly hosts. And we don't know how many heavenly hosts were in the area, in the proximity, but we know at least there's two, at least two seraphim nearby. And he poses this question to all of them, not just Isaiah, or he would have said, Isaiah, can I send you? Will you go for me? He poses it to everyone. And it's cool that right off the bat, Isaiah is ready and willing, even though he doesn't know where or what he's about to commit to. This readiness and willingness is beautiful. One of the things that I want you to see is this guy is ready to do whatever God asks of him, but he had to be ruined first. He had to be ruined first. He had to experience death and lostness and woeness, if we can create a word, first. I want to speak to y'all if you're wanting to be used by God as a parent. If you're wanting to be a godly parent or a godly grandparent. Or if you're a young person that wants to be used for God's kingdom in some way. Or if you're a teacher that wants to be used by God. Let's say you're a deacon. Let's say you're an elder. Let me put on all the hats that we could possibly wear in this room. And just appeal to you that you must be ruined as a prerequisite to be used by God in those capacities. The problem is when people launch off into those positions and launch off into those callings without being ruined by the holiness and the presence of God. I want you to appreciate and understand, too, that it's not just a one-time deal. It's an ongoing experience that continues every single time you view the holiness of God. You may have a thought about the first time that you ever came to know the Lord, the first time that you ever recognized who God is and what he's done for you in Christ. In some ways, you experienced the holiness and the presence of the Lord. You experienced the death, our Bibles tell us. That you died and a new creation was born. Now, that's a, sounding very individualistic. And the passage that I'm referring to actually deals more with the church as a new people is born through Christ's work. But you, in an individual sense, as you experience the holiness of God... You died, and you were remade new. That's something beautiful that you can think back to, but I want you to understand that doesn't just happen once. It happens every single time we step into the presence of the Lord and take long drinks of his character, and together take long drinks of his holiness. And I think that happens for us every single week when we gather. Every single week when we gather and we open his word, and we sing true things about him back to him. As we are reminded what God has done for us in Christ. As we are reminded from the word week after week who God is, what he's done for us. As we are re reminded of his character, we experience his holiness. And we are ruined. I have a few different passages I'll refer to over the course of the morning. You may jot these down. Some of them I'm going to have you turn to at some point. But this passage I'll just read to you and tell you where it is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. He's speaking to a church and he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
Sounds like his brilliant holiness. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice the tense of that statement. We are being transformed. And also notice the we. We together are being transformed every time we step into the presence of the Lord through corporate worship. Can you do that in your individual time as you read and you pray and maybe you sing? Absolutely. But I believe week after week, the primary engagement of the holiness of God is sitting together corporately. Or we together corporately, the we, enjoy week after week His holiness. And we find that, yes, week after week, we are, in fact, ruined a little bit. Ruined a little bit. God examination with the resultant and consequential self-examination fosters ongoing death and ruination that makes you ready to be used Jesus spoke of this, I think, in Luke 9, where he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What do you think happens on a cross? You die. You're ruined. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I've memorized it from the New American Standard. Your ESV reads a little bit differently. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, because what God has done for us in the first 11 chapters in Romans, because he has atoned for us, in view of his mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a present tense thing. We go on dying as living sacrifices. See, fresh visions of God's holiness do this to us. They ruin us, but they leave us ready. It's a little side diagnostic before we take a, before we look back at Isaiah. This is an observation that I think I have considered in the last 13 years as I look back. And I think about from time to time, and I think about what it means to lead a church and lead people and encourage people to move as God calls us. If you have to beg someone to serve, if you have to beg them, then they haven't fully apprehended what has been done for them, and they haven't had a recent long drink in the holiness of God. If you have to beg people to serve the Lord, then they're not seeing the holiness of God that leaves them ruined and ready time and time and time again. So that's what I want to do up here week after week is just put on display the holiness of God. Let's just unpack it. Let's serve it up because I have no other words for you than to expose God's character and God's glory and God's greatness and God's holiness. And if you see that in regular and long drinks, you can't keep people from being used. Isaiah has a fitting response when he's, when he's called, when God puts this question out there to the heavenly host and to Isaiah. And I can't help but imagine that Isaiah was thinking this after his sins were atoned for. I can't help but imagine that Isaiah was thinking, how can I respond to this unmerited and complete and total atonement by this holy God? And then God asked the question, whom shall I send? It's put out there to the entire heavenly host, and yet it's Isaiah who speaks up and says, Would I do? Can I go? Could you use me? 
This guy who moments earlier has ruined now says, I'll go if you can use me. It's a beautiful picture of a ruined man made ready. The sad part about this chapter is that oftentimes a sermon ends here with verse 8. I've heard sermons over the years that were preached from Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. And they're inspiring and they send people off to all manner of kingdom work. But unfortunately the rest of the chapter is sometimes neglected. But we're not going to neglect it this morning because it's going to take us to the nature of Isaiah's call. Let's turn and consider verses 9 and 10 as we look together at a tough call and a tough commission. And we're going to avoid the rude awakening that people often experience if the rest of the chapter is neglected and they're called to some sort of God kingdom advancing work. We're going to avoid the rude awakening by looking at the rest of the chapter. Verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. And verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, verse 9 is sort of a condensed, undiluted, like concentrated version of what God wants uh, Isaiah to preach to the nation of Israel. It's a 14-word version. We could call it a 14-word sermon. Look at it. Your Bibles likely are like mine. They put quotations around that. That's what God is telling him to preach, a 14-word sermon. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. A 14-word sermon, and then in verse 10, there's some commentary explaining the sermon. But before we consider the content of the message, first, I want us to consider the nature of God's rule via a message and a messenger. This little call that's crazy call that God has put on Isaiah's life gives us a view into how our God rules then and now. It gives us a view of how God rules via a message and an ordained and called messenger. God doesn't rule with swords and clubs when he's advancing his kingdom. God doesn't rule, hear this right now, you need to hear this especially right now, on October the 30th, leading up to the, the first few days in November that we're all about to experience. God does not advance his rule and his reign through political means. Everybody exhale. Exhale. He rules and reigns through a message and a messenger, not by political means, not with swords, not with clubs. Before we even consider the message itself we should first recognize that he rules via a message. Listen to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 1, another man that was called to God's service. Jeremiah chapter 1, just listen for a moment and hear what God tells Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am but a wee youth. That's the Irish version. I am only only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, 
For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched Jeremiah's mouth. Remember, he touched Isaiah's mouth with coal. And here he touches Jeremiah's mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Jeremiah is going to bring his word to bear and God's rule is going to be advanced through Jeremiah's message. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. A few verses later in chapter 1, he says to Jeremiah, listen to what he says. But you, Jeremiah, dress yourself for work, boy. He doesn't say boy, but I just imagine. Put on your car hearts. Put on your work gloves. Because the work, and here's the work. Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I have commanded you. God reigns and he rules through a message. Man, before we ever even consider the nature of God's message through Isaiah, we have to first consider that God rules via a message. And our fight is not a political fight. I don't want to discourage any of you from getting into politics. Man, I love the thought of godly people being in politics. But don't let it confuse you. Our primary work, with all the hats that I identified at the beginning of the morning, is to be message bearers as ordained messengers who are experiencing ruination in the holiness of God. And then readiness to then speak. That's how God's rule is exercised. So I ask you the question, what are you fighting for? Man, what are you fighting for? Everybody's fighting right now for their views and their thoughts. Man, what are you fighting for? We should be fighting to get the message out. That's our fight. Because that's how God reigns and rules via a message. Now, as to the message... Let's consider the message. This may be the oddest commission ever issued in our Bibles. A 14-word sermon, sort of a, a condensed version of what God is going to have Isaiah do through the rest of the book for the rest of his ministry. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And then in an explanation, in so many words, he says, And in your going and in your preaching, their hearts are going to grow duller. And harder. Their ears are going to grow deafer. And their eyes are going to grow blinder. This is not a misprint. Realize what he is telling Isaiah here. We've got to figure this out. We've got to crack the code on this. you agree? I want us to crack the code in the next few minutes. So first we're going to consider what it doesn't mean. What God is not telling Isaiah to do is he is not telling Isaiah to present some difficult uh, elusive, mysterious, hard-to-understand message to Judah in Israel. In fact, this is just so beautiful to me. In Isaiah chapter 28, you can listen to this passage. It's not, it doesn't really have a big part to play in the sermon, but I want to read it to you. It helps you kind of understand the nature of Isaiah's message. Isaiah is speaking of what people have said about him and his teaching. 
And listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9. To whom will he teach and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That tells us a lot about the nature of Isaiah's message to Judah and Israel. What the others were saying about Isaiah and his message is they were saying this guy speaks with such clarity that his teaching was characterized as fit for kindergartners. Look at what it said there. Line upon line, word upon word. It's fit for those who are drinking their mother's milk. It wasn't because it was a difficult message. It was a very clear and easy to understand message fit for kindergartners. So he's not saying that you're going to preach something hard to understand. What it seems to mean in a minute, we're going to look at it, but don't miss first the really strange point that you've got to get. Isaiah's preaching will not make it easier for Judah to repent and believe, but actually harder. Let that hit you for a minute. Isaiah's preaching will not make it easier for Judah to repent and believe, but actually harder with every sermon and every word. Bizarre? I mean, is anybody thinking, wow, how in the world are we going to crack the code on this? How in the world is this joker going to explain this, is what you're thinking about me right now. we got a good explanation for it, all right? So let's see if we can get down to the bottom of it. We're going to try and figure out what God is up to. But before we do that, let me just point out to you that God has done this before. If you've read your Old Testaments, it might sound like a familiar context, or the context might sound like something else that you've read about. Listen to this passage from the book of Exodus, chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak, there it is again, speak all that I have commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But guess what, Moses? (laughs) As you're speaking to Pharaoh... Guess what I'm going to do? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land by great acts of judgment. You would expect that Moses would object to that kind of call. And from what I recall, I think he did. Doesn't sound like a very good job, does it? Well, what we're about to hear from Isaiah here in a moment is going to give us a thought, a clue of what he's thinking about the same sort of call. Man, it is a rough, rough call. And we have to ask the question, what in the world could God be up to with this? This is just bizarre. Preach a message that actually makes them more resistant to repentance, more resistance to belief with every single word. What is God up to? It's going to become clear as we move into the rest of the chapter. But I want to point this out before we continue. Y'all need to hear this. So I get off my stool when things get really important. This is like a a physical representation. You've got to hear this. Very important. Very important that you hear this. Faithfulness of a ministry and faithfulness of a minister 
is not measured by the response or the growth of the people. I want you to hear that. I'm going to show you a great example of that in a minute from the best preacher that's ever lived. Faithfulness of the minister or the ministry is not measured by the response or the growth. The measurement for the faithfulness of a minister or a ministry is to say what God has told the messengers to say verbatim. That's the plumb line. Not the outcome. The outcome is God's business. Our call is to be faithful to the message. Say as exactly, dress like a man, Jeremiah. Get dressed for work and say what I have given you. That's our charge. Isaiah, I'm going to tell you what to say. And it's a 14-word sermon. You can say it a million different ways with a million different illustrations. But here's your message for Israel. 14 words. Don't deviate. The faithfulness of a ministry or a minister is measured by the faithfulness to say what God has told the messengers to say. That's important for you to hear because there's a temptation for all the hats that I pointed at the very beginning. As parents, as pastors, as deacons, as teachers, as uh, young people, whatever you might have planned, whatever you're thinking, there's a temptation to reject the message or to modify, excuse me, there's a temptation to modify the message if it's rejected. Or there's a temptation to modify the messenger if it's rejected. Let's get a new mouthpiece. Because this, this, this thing's not getting the response that we think it ought to have. And there's a temptation to change the message. If it's not getting the response that we think it ought to have, we want to go, ooh, maybe I need to soften this a little bit. Maybe I need to round this out a little bit and take off some of these sharp edges. And man, you need to realize that that is faithlessness with what he has called us to do as messengers that he is ruling through. We could find ourselves being tempted to get a new message or get a new messenger in the absence of what we often call and what the world often calls, air quotes, results. Right? Results. I have all kind of thoughts about the sizes of a church, and let me just tell you this. I don't, want, I don't want to get into a lot of details about this, but the mark of the faithfulness of a church is not the size of the church. And there's nothing wrong with a large church. Hear me. Nothing at all. There's some very faithful large churches. But flip that around. Just because a church is large does not mean they're faithful. And just because a message, a guy has a big following, does not mean it's a faithful message. The mark is whether it deviates from God's message or not. That's the measure of faithfulness, and the outcome is God's business. Dress yourself for work and say what I tell you to do. Say what I tell you to say. Isaiah, thankfully, was dressed for work. He's dressed like a man because he was faithful, and he didn't modify the message, and he didn't shut up either. He didn't stop talking just because he faced some resistance. He kept preaching God's message. This was Isaiah's call. And it, I hope you agree at this point, was a doozy. It was a doozy. So let's look at the last few verses of this chapter, beginning in verse 11. We're going to try and figure out what in the world God is up to. We've been building up this sort of this pregnant question that we're ready to give birth and make sense of this, this question. What is God up to? We've got to figure this out. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Then I said... 
Isaiah said, that sounds awesome, God. I can't wait to embark on this ministry. This sounds like the best ministry that anybody could ever be called to. I'm, I, when do we start? Right? No, that's not what he said. Isaiah said, how long, O Lord? I mean, can you feel what he must be imagining? This sounds like the worst job in the world. How long, O Lord? And God responded and said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. We're saving the last phrase for the supper. But we're going to look at what I just read. We're going to look at what I just read and try and make sense of this. Isaiah's response to God's call in his life might be shock. It might be chagrin. It might be sorrow. It might be dismay. Whatever is behind his response, we might imagine that it's like a, how long I got to do that, Lord? That sounds like a really terrible call. We don't know exactly what's behind his response, but we do know what's in store for Judah and Israel because he goes into great detail here. How long do I have to preach where they grow duller and deafer and blinder with each message and each word? How long do I have to do that? Okay, here's how long. Until cities, houses, and land lies in waste. That's how long. Lie, plural. Cities, houses, and land lie in waste. Man, I hope it's lie and not lay. That's what I'm thinking about. All the English teachers in here. Christy tunes me up for stuff like that every now and again, gently. That's how long. Until this land is ravaged and the Lord, who is the agent of this thing, where he's ripping these people from the promised land, the Lord removes this people from the land that was promised to them and the agent that he uses is going to be Assyria and Babylon, pagan armies. See, God can do that because he's God. He can use a pagan army to bring judgment on his own people. He can do it and he did it. But he's the one that did it, ultimately. He's the agent behind it. And even the few who remain after this land has been ravaged will be ravaged some more until Judah looks like this. Put my picture up there, Jake. Now, it's got a little thing on the bottom, super stock. We've got to give super stock some credit here. I ripped that off from him. It's just such a good picture. Thank you, Superstock. Man, there's Judah. That's the consequence of rebelling against God because God's not a chump. Do you realize that? He wasn't a chump then and he's not a chump now. And the people rebelled against their God and they ended up looking like this. Going back to the question I asked you at the beginning of the morning, I wonder how you filled that question in. You may have a tough time with concepts like this if the first thing you filled into the blank is love. Now let me set you at ease. You weren't wrong in saying God is love because God is love. But I think at least according to Isaiah chapter 6 and at least according to the story of the the um, um, the story that we're looking at where they're exiled excuse me 
at least according to the story of the exile, we have to agree that God first is holy. And remember how we defined holy as distinct and brilliant. So then we could take God as love and say, you know what? God has a holy love. God has a holy mercy. God has a holy grace. But holiness is, I think, is the wellspring for all of the other things that we see from God. These critters that sit around the throne for eternity, they don't sing all day long, every day, love, 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 God is love. They sing, God is holy. I think it's the beginning place. It's where we need to start. And if you can fill in the blank with God is holy, then you can begin to make sense of what we're seeing behind us and what has happened and what will happen to Israel. See, what's going down here in this call and this message that he's put on Isaiah's life is that God's judgment is going to be on display and his judgment will be through the exile, I should say exiles of the North and South Kingdom, indisputable. His judgment will be undoubtable. Nobody can look at Israel or Judah and say, well, I'm not sure that they needed, that they really deserved this. But realize, as Isaiah is preaching, he is preaching proof that that's what Israel deserves. And ironically, he's preaching proof of what man deserves. This is just a, a, a visual of what our lot is. It's the human problem that we get to see in little micro through Isaiah. Preaching for Isaiah is like the narrative behind God's judgment of Israel. And it provides all the more fodder that this people is in fact unclean. This people is in fact ruined. And this people are in fact, these people are in fact due the judgment of God. No doubts about it. It is indisputable evidence. If anyone ever had any doubts about, as to their guilt, God proves this as they simply press on in disobedience and rebellion while hearing kindergarten simple messages of repentance. They press on in rebellion and disobedience. You might think this is just a unique time. Turn to Matthew 13. I have two passages for us to look at before we finish this morning. And we're getting toward the landing the plane, but I want you to see these passages. I want you to see that this was not a unique time are a unique people. That there is, in fact, nothing new under the sun. Because you may think, well, this is 700 years before Christ, and, you know, people were different back then, and circumstances were different. And let me show you something that's true. 700 years after this, in the time of Christ, let's look at chapter 13 of Matthew. Um, I'll read a little, a few verses there for context, but we're going to mainly focus on verse 10. Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, beginning in verse 1. Great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, a.k.a. kindergarten simple messages. The best preacher that's ever lived, that still lives, by the way, is preaching with kindergarten simple messages. And let's look if we see if we can make sense of this in verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in kindergarten like stories? Line by line, verse by verse. You know, like, like they're little babies, like drinking milk. It's, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, 
more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You hear deafer, blinder, harder with every single word and every single sermon. This is why I speak to them in parables, or a.k.a. kindergarten-like lessons, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Oh, well, look at there. 700 years later, Jesus says, hey, people aren't any different now. Israel's not any different now, and people aren't any different now. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes, they can barely hear. With their, e- excuse me, with their ears, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And what he shows us right here, the greatest preacher that's ever lived through kindergarten-level type lessons is that some will grow deafer while other, others grow ruined and ready through the same simple message. The same simple message will bring some to a place of repentance, i.e. ruination and readiness, and others to a place of, that's dumb, that's foolishness, no thanks, with the very same message. Maybe this was just true 700 years before Christ and, and then in Christ's time and maybe it wasn't true for the churches. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the last place I want to have you turn this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think what we can find from our Bibles here, if we're really going to do the work, is we can find that this was true of 700 years before Christ. That the message, in fact, does not return void. See, that's what... You know, we use that, that phrase oftentimes thinking, okay, that's going to bring somebody to a place of repentance. I'm just believing it, which it could, and we should believe that about our loved ones and our friends and our workmates. But you should also realize that that word will not return void. It may be bringing them to a place of judgment also. The very same message may be bringing some to life and then others just confirming their judgment is fair. Let's see it. Let's see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's see what Paul tells the church in Corinth beginning in verse 14. He says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by Christ in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says, we're not peddlers of God's word because what do peddlers do? They're selling their wares and they're looking for a product that helps them. And the reality is, we are not peddlers of God's word. We are simply speaking in Christ. And the reality is, some are going to hear the words of Christ, i.e. a messenger, or a message to a messenger, and go, yes, those are the words of eternal life. But the very same message will bring others to the place where they go, that is foolishness. That's death. No thank you. And I don't even want to hear anymore. I may tolerate a little bit, but no 
Thank you. Our message, though, must not change. And our message must not be measured by the response. Because it'll set you free. This sets me free as a preacher where I'll be able to sleep tonight. Because if somebody here this morning says, you know what? What I heard this morning at that church was just foolishness. And I've got no use for this God business or this Jesus business. I can sleep at night and knowing that, that that's, not, that's not up to me. It wasn't due to my lack of eloquence. It wasn't due to my ability to, to expose what was in the word. Because it's pretty simple. It's not about whether it's clear or not. The word doesn't return void. Period. And as we, we've exposed it and we set it free, I can sleep at night knowing that God's going to do his work with it. It's not going to be a waste, ever. And man, I'll tell you what, what can be coupled with that bedtime, you know, going to bed concept is the thought that, Lord, I pray that there's lots of good soil out there. And I pray that there are lots of people that are hearing that and going, yes, that's, those are the words of life. But something that helps me is realizing that preaching today has the same effect of either hardening the heart or softening the heart. Either hardening the heart towards God or softening the heart toward salvation. The word judges and divides while it's faithfully proclaimed. And the reality is unfaithful preaching will steer clear of those effects. We don't want to have anybody rejected. So we'll, we will likely steer clear of some difficult truths like this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What's common to both of those responses? The word. It doesn't change. And some are going to say that's folly. That's foolishness. No thanks. But others are going to say, that's the power of God right there. As we share Christ with others, as I identified all those hats that we might wear at the beginning, pastors, parents, deacons, young people, teachers, as we share Christ with others, as you're sharing Christ with, even with, within a family, God may use our efforts and message to draw them to him. But the reality is he may use that message also to harden their hearts in unbelief. It's not up to you. And it's not due to how great you are, how much finesse you use, or how eloquent you are. That's his business, is the outcome. Man, thankfully his word won't return void, ever. I know and I realize this morning that this is a tough concept. But let me tell you this, what was true for Isaiah was true for Christ 700 years later. What was true for Christ was true for Paul and the other apostles 30, 40, however many years later. And what's true for the apostles here 2,000 years later must be true for us. The message doesn't change, and the response is up to the Lord. God determines the outcome, and as men and women of sincerity, we just speak in Christ. I'll leave you with a quote from one of my commentators, a guy named Motyer. It's just a great quote. I thought it was captured sort of the essence of this message. Opportunity in life is as often judgment as it is salvation. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that we have a message that doesn't change. Or we have a message that shouldn't change. 
And God, I'm thankful that that message will not, if we are faithful to it, will not ever return void. God, I'm thankful that we're not in the role or the place of determining how it's received, but that our job is simply to speak in Christ as men and women of sincerity. God, I do pray, I confess, my prayer would be that every person that hears this says, man, that's life. That's, that's salvation. Those are words of power and salvation right there. But Lord, I'm thankful that this is ultimately your business and your work. I pray that instead of leaving us just lazy in our speech, that this will free us up to speak in Christ. That we can be an aroma wherever we go, in every place, in the workplace, in our kitchens, in our dens, in our neighborhoods, in our backyards. God, I pray that we will be the aroma of Christ, speaking as men and women of sincerity, speaking in Christ, knowing and trusting that your word will not return void. We're thankful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I told you I was leaving the last part of verse 13 off for the supper. If you notice, I didn't read that little phrase because uh, it's interesting that Isaiah's message, many people have described Isaiah's message of the entire book being a book of doom. And it is in a lot of ways. But if, if it's a book of doom, I read a quote where a guy said, on the fringe of the garment of doom is hope. It's fringed with hope throughout. And this little phrase at the end of chapter 6 is a fringe of hope. The holy seed is its stump. Put that picture back up there if you would. The stump picture that we'll borrow, the one we borrowed from whatever his name is, Superstock. I want you to look at that for a minute. I don't know that any of you would look at that field and think that's anything other than a picture of hopelessness. Hopelessness. And when you cut a tree down like that, you're not looking at that tree expectantly, are you? That is abject hopelessness as you look at that. It's probably the same kind of hopelessness that people would have imagined if they knew Abram and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai. Maybe the same kind of hopelessness that Abram and Sarai might have experienced, at least at first, as they said, We're old and barren. Are you kidding me? We look like that. But yet God says, You know what? I'm going to build a people through you. Because I do amazing things with unlikely things. And I can't imagine that the disciples, as they stood around the base of the cross and looked at their Savior that they had left everything for to follow, nailed to a cross, they weren't looking at that cross and that dead Savior like we're looking at those stumps. Hopelessness, right? But we know better. God's in the business of taking hopeless situations and turning them into the center of our hope. Turning them into life. For we know what came from Abram and Sarai, later Abraham and Sarah, the birth of a people. And we know what became of that cross on that terrible Friday. We know what happened on Sunday morning, and we know what was accomplished in that work. And that's what we do every single week when we take the supper. We celebrate and enjoy that God does amazing things with stumps. The last part of this chapter right here are these words, the holy seed, that sounds like life, doesn't it? Is it stump? <laughs> what? You mean the future for this people? I didn't even know there was a future because I'm looking at the field and it looks like there isn't. He says, now, 
There's a seed there. And I'm going to do something with it. Together we're going to consider that phrase and then a big part of chapter 7 next week. And we're going to consider the seed. And just this morning though, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want us to enjoy the stump of the cross. Let's enjoy that we know better. We know what happened come Sunday. And each week, like this morning, we can enjoy and declare that it's our God who has atoned for our sins through what looked like complete tragedy and loss. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the stump of the Lord's death until he comes. I want to be very careful about not injecting New scripture, you know how it reads. Every week we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The world, look at that man, you're celebrating the death of somebody? We're like, yep, because that's the hope of the world. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy that together.